Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 26 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. As we celebrate the halfway point of the Christmas year, a Christmas of podcast movies and specials, we are turning to a movie that I think people are a little divided on, uh, maybe more divided than my memories uh, remembered. Uh, we're, we're talking about 2005's The Family Stone. It was written and directed by Thomas Bazucha. That's how I'm saying his name. Maybe it's Bazooka, but that sounds kind of silly. It makes me think of Joe Bazooka. So maybe for purposes, we're just going to call him Tom. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Caroline, I know this was a movie I was very excited about and remembered fondly. Was this a movie you had ever seen before? Or is this in the, the Cupstus Daily tradition? <laughs> it is not. And this came out at a time, this came out in December 2005, that I had a bunch of little kids. I had three kids between 2002 and 2003. So I had a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of little babies around 2005. And this was not one that I would have seen I think that I was divided during the movie. Like I was watching it and yeah. like going back and forth, like, like, this is very relatable. Oh, this is good. And be like, I hate this part. <laughs> yeah. No, very I, back and forth. But you have history with it. I, I, yeah, I saw this movie in the theaters. I remember very clearly laughing, being sad. I found the movie very relatable. Not that I have a large family. I actually have a very small family, but dysfunctional as all get out. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine loud and loud. I mean, we're, you know, a bunch of Italians from New York. So I, that equals loud to me. Yeah. And it, the uh, the idea of everyone is fair game. Everyone gets treated like fresh meat for the for the lions in the den. Seems like nothing is off limits in any way, shape or form that you can say the most sarcastic or the meanest things you can think of without a filter at any given time. That's what this family is kind of like, and and that's a family that I'm very familiar with. You do well to have pads on at all times. So I found this movie very relatable. And when I watched it again, I also, I mean, I still, all the things I liked about it, watching it again, and I haven't watched it in quite a long time, I still liked about it. I don't know how much I like it as a Christmas movie, though, for purposes of this podcast and for the purposes of what we're talking about here. It's something that I'm hoping over the course of talking this out with you now, I have mm -hmm. I, I get some resolution on because I still love oh, I still I still really love it as a movie. OK, so for those of you who are like, I've never heard of this movie. IMDb says an uptight conservative businesswoman accompanies her boyfriend to his eccentric and outgoing family's annual Christmas celebration and finds out she's a fish out of water in their free spirited way of life and even that description <laughs> even that description i feel like doesn't do the stone family remote mm -hmm. justice they sound they sound quaint and quirky in that description 
You know, it, it's a weird, it's a weird dynamic they have. They're super liberal, but also super not accepting. That is exactly my issue with Diane Keaton as Sybil Stone, the mom. I could not peg her. I was like, she seems so open. There was like these one points in time when she's talking about sex and she had this total vibe of Ben Stiller's mom in Meet the Parents, Meet the Fockers, if you will, Meet the Fockers. Chimichangas! Right. Chimichangas! Give me a yeah. chimichanga! Yeah, like, had so. that attitude, right? But then at the same time, super closed off and conservative, very not accepting, not nurturing, like, right. in a mom kind of way. So she was a puzzle to me. I couldn't really wrap my arms around her. If you're not immediately on the ball with how this family runs you are banned or blackballed immediately. So I don't think it's, it's not, it's not, it's not that she's, I don't think it's that she's liberally open when it comes to sex and to drugs and to any of the things that we see her in this movie. I mean, there, there's a comment where, right, where she's talking about Rachel McAdams's character, uh, Amy, her daughter, uh, the fact that, you know, Brad popped her cherry, she says. That felt so odd. Like, I've never heard a mom say that. It felt so odd. And then she made it so much worse when she said something along the lines, this is a paraphrase, of he must have had a taste of something he liked because he kept coming around. Super gross. Super gross. But at the same time, if you're not, you know, with it immediately, like you have to get in the water with the sharks and be a shark immediately yourself. You're done for. Very like to me, I equate this with like a very Vermont small town kind of attitude of like, you weren't born here. You're not a part of us. Like you'll never be a part of us. Right. No matter if you lived here 80 years, we're still not going to count you as one of us. It, she's very like that. Even the way she treats Everett until he removes his tie and begins to loosen up. You know, she even treats him a little bit like he is this black sheep that is no longer a part of this family until he earns his way back into the family's good graces. Almost like, you know, if they had like thrown food at him and yelled sell out, it felt like that would have been kind of on brand for how the Stone family gets down. What did you think about Dermot Mulrooney playing this part? Uh, just as a general matter, this is the most stacked cast of any movie you and I have covered in this podcast by a mile. The, the bench is deep with stars in this movie, which is fascinating to me because it's not a movie everyone. I mean, you could say the family stone to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people would be like, what? Hmm? You know how there's always a movie that comes out, though, like every couple of years where it's like several little snippets of love stories or whatever. And it's like Julia Roberts and blah, blah, blah. There's a bunch of these different types of movies that like are sort New of Year's like, Eve with like, yeah, yes, where yes. you get little snippets of a bunch of different moments with stars, if you will. Feels very much like that type of movie to me. And that like this doesn't feel like it, it, it was an 18 million dollar budget. It doesn't feel like they took like a long time filming it or anything it feels like something that this group did quickly there's an interesting little factoid about here that uh, thomas bazooka he put them all together the nine core cast members playing the stones uh he put them through kind of a family boot camp so they had to spend several weeks of uh, they did several weeks of rehearsal so they were thrown together before the cameras ever rolled to develop a little bit of a family bond and they also went through a crash course in asl again more i think even as a bonding technique as versus becoming proficient in asl which is something i want to talk to you about and, and your feelings on how they handle that in the plot line but yeah your specific question was was to dermot i like him in this role the sister swapping 
besides. I think mm-hmm. this is the right kind of role for Dermot Mulroney. This is not so far afield, I think, from like his character in My Best Friend's Wedding, where he's, again, buttoned up, not living his honest, true life or honest, true self until he is very much conflicted about honor and duty versus maybe what he actually wants to be doing. I think there's a lot of parallels in those characters, which I kind of have come to see as the Dermot Mulroney character. I agree. So in a way, it kind of just feels like like it's Dermot he's playing. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, I, I wonder how he would feel about that kind of characterization. But it, it definitely, I see him in this role and I'm like, yeah, I get it. Did you buy Craig T. Nelson as Kelly Stone dad? <sighs> I love Craig T. Nelson. I'm a big coach fan. I I think a lot of people in our generation are. I thought this was a really sensitive kind of performance from him. Him and Diane Keaton together have a very interesting chemistry and dynamic about them. I think they really portray a married couple I've never seen on film before. I mean, he's extremely submissive to her, but also has kind of a quiet strength about him about himself as well, a very loving, you know, in a lot of ways, the the gender roles are kind of flipped. Diane Keaton very much plays a patriarchal, gender-wise kind of role here, and he's very much like the emotional backbone of the family, very much like your traditional mother of a large family kind of role. And I think that's an interesting flip, and not one I've really seen, and I think with these two characters, with these two actors of their caliber, I think they sell it pretty well. I'm not used to seeing him in so sensitive a position, but I think he handles it with with uh, a plum. I mean, we have to discuss why. You know, we, we meet the family stone here at a specific time of their life. And with Sybil being sick, where it's expressed to us, then I feel like she is being strong the majority of the movie, she has some little small moments when she when she kind of breaks and shows her true feelings and everything. But I think that Craig T. Nelson, like, it would be really, really, really off-putting if he was this, like, hard-ass or whatever, because, because given the circumstances, the larger picture. I, I agree. I agree. She's definitely being strong, and so he's, he's picking up— He's kind up, of being, like, the sweetheart. He's being—picking up the emotional slack, but just— the the scenes that are them interacting with their kids that don't have the express cancer grief aspects hanging over it mm-hmm. still seem to scream to me this is a family where mom made the rules and everyone followed her lead that that the tone of the family the, he, he may be the stone but the tone of the family, the aesthetic, the vibe of the family stone is Sybil's aesthetic and her vibe. She mm-hmm. she has set the tone and created these kids. And he has taken a backseat role or not backseat. That's not the right word. He has taken the partner role uh, in the relationship where she and she drives the bus. So it seems I think that dynamic is I get the very I get the very impression just watching how the kids interact, just how they interact with each other, how they interact with their parents. It seems very much that grief and cancer aside, this has always been the family dynamic, which I think exacerbates the pending loss of her even more. 
Well, also, it's a pretty big family. And I think when you have so many kids, I think that that also tends to put mom front and center because there's so many kiddos versus adults, if you will, that that mom ends up spending a lot more time creating the world that everyone's in. Additionally, I think that Thad being deaf, I think that she also has moments of showing those special needs moms qualities that I definitely have that also, you know, is sort of that no nonsense, like I I have to advocate for my my child all the time. And this family is going to advocate for Thad. And so there's a whole bunch of strength that comes from a different place that I feel like you could get out of Sybil. Let's stick with uh, Tyrone Giordano, who plays Thad here. He is a he's a he is a deaf actor who has worked on stage and in screen. This was one of this was his big movie that he had done. There's a lot going on with Thad and Thad and Patrick. So the movie is doing a lot with this character. Not only is he deaf, he's also gay. He's also in an interracial relationship in the early 2000s when this country as a whole is not in the same place as where we are in 2021, which is probably still not far enough, there's a lot happening with Thad and Thad and Patrick as a couple. And and, and I, I want to put Patrick in here, too, because I think Patrick works as a character best as part of Patrick and Thad. You know, I, I got the impression that Patrick also had kind of a hard time. There are looks that he gives Meredith, like, girl, I know, I know what you're feeling here right now. Like, I get it. He's the one that sticks up for her when they're doing the charades. And he's like, you guys are terrible. You know, like, he he does stick up for her. My, my, the question, the point I was getting to in a very obtuse way was, are they doing too much with that? Is it, is it? Uh, we're going to make him gay. We're going to make him deaf. We're going to make him, you know, in his, in this interracial relationship, uh, you know, but he's also going to be sweet and funny and really have no other flaws. Like there's a lot. I mean, he, he's, he's a really great character. And I think, I think uh, uh, Tyrone does a great job with him. But I also found myself thinking like, man, they were trying to check a lot of boxes off here. It did feel that way. Like they threw in, you know, everything but the kitchen sink with him. Um, You know, this is what I here's here's my honest feeling about it. I very much appreciated the use of sign language. I appreciated it. As soon as it started happening, I was like, oh, my God, I love this. They signed in a way that was um, clear enough for the audience. Like I, I knew what they were saying uh, without them saying it. I, I knew what they were signing. And I appreciated that there was times when specifically Thad, the character, but Tyrone, the man, would sign kind of in a casual way where it's like one handed sign. And it's like kind of like they were holding hands or they're doing different things that was so natural that mm-hmm. I was like, yay, I love this portrayal. I love that. It's just like a part of the family. It's just woven in there. I appreciated that. To be honest with you, I think that they gave that a partner and I think. I think they made him gay because there was no other outside woman then because otherwise there was no other like quote unquote sister-in-law right in the in the mix here like Meredith was going to be the first woman who had to come into this mix. I also think they used Patrick and now this is this one I feel kind of mm, about there's scenes that should have been happening with Thad that they had with Patrick and I think that was probably because of the extra layer that sign language adds that it was just probably faster and easier to just quickly 
film something with Patrick, honestly. Mm-hmm. And because there was there was like heart to hearts that happened between Sybil and Patrick that really made no sense. They really should have been happening with Thad. And so I was like, well, I hmm, I feel like that Patrick was used kind of as a crutch. Like you looked more of like Thad and Patrick as a unit. Right. So either you could talk to Thad or you could talk to Patrick. And it was like essentially talking to the same character, which it's not. And that's kind of weird. I agree with you. I think that's a big sin of the movie is that they really treat them as a unit. As It's interesting. As as invisible as they make Elizabeth Reeser's character, uh, the other sister, the not Amy no sister, joke, right? Sus- Susanna Stone, her and her even more invisible husband. And her almost invisible kid. There's a kid in this house at Christmas. As as in, who's who just likes shoes, who just likes high fat like high She just barely, barely registers. Uh yeah, and really all I can think of when even I just watched this movie and still now all I think of is just asking about Meredith's shoes and if she could use them and she breaks the heel. Uh, but yeah, so as invisible as she is, they I feel the the other sin of the movie with the kids is that they really do treat Patrick and Thad as a unit, except for when it's convenient to use Patrick as a device. Or that as a device, for that matter. Like, at the dinner, obviously. I mean, that was like an entire thing there that, you know... I don't know if that was like really the right way to handle all that. My the one thing I liked about the scenes between Patrick and Sybil, it made a nice contrast to how Sybil immediately off the bat out of the gate treated Meredith. Patrick at some point was an outsider but got on the program and got family acceptance. And when I say family acceptance, I really just mean she got he got Sybil's acceptance. That actually served as a nice counterpoint to the idea would Meredith ever get to that place? It, the, they're they're so aggressively anti her. The idea that she could ever achieve a place in this family as a non-stone stone, I, I thought it was a nice contrast in using him. Like because there's this there's this constant reminder, and it almost makes the family a little bit bulletproof, right? Because Meredith can say, "You're all horrible to me. What did I do to you?" Which she says in the movie. Finally, she steps. She's like, "What did I do to all of you?" It's you, Meredith. It's not outsiders. Look, we have Patrick. They can always point to him as some kind of bulletproof right. cover. We took him in and he is part of us. He is one of us. So our issues are with you specifically, not with outsiders, which maybe is a bad narrative crutch to to rest on. It it may be very accurate, but it doesn't make it not wrong. No. The idea of kind of talking to Patrick, like, how are things like, how do I want to say this? It's like. I think it marginalizes Thad. I think it makes it be like, well, Thad has, you know, he he's not as much of a character. And honestly, he's in this far less than, than many of the other ones. Although I know Susanna is like really like half the time I was like, she's even a sister here. Yeah. I mean, she's it's there. So she just is just like a place. And maybe she it's had so maybe odd. her voice was hoarse. I don't know what the issue is, but she was on Something. set. She yeah. was there. Like she, I mean, and like Elizabeth Reeser has gone on in the years since. I mean, she's probably had one of the more successful and, and least productive careers uh, of any of these actors. She's been in a ton of stuff. And yet, yeah, she's just invisible. 
So I'm going to say this, and, and it's going to sound not right, but I'm, I'm just going to try to say this. And again, I'm a mom of three special needs kids, so I'm not saying this like in a vacuum. I feel like in talking to Patrick, Sybil is treating Patrick as Thad's caretaker. Oh. And so it's like they can have conversations and kind of almost speak about Thad and speak about things going on in their life in a way that there's no reason she shouldn't be talking directly to her son. But it's like he's being treated like a little second class. I kind of ruffle at that. You brought it up. And so I think it's interesting to discuss that very uncomfortable dinner scene where Meredith, again, displaying this idea that she's never spoken to a human being ever, (laughs) uh, um... begins to ask really pointed questions in this very Bambi-esque kind of way about why would Thad and Patrick want to raise, uh, uh, bring a kid into the world who may be gay, uh, you know, and or have mixed race parents. The family comes to their defense, I think, in a way that undercuts Patrick and Thad, because I feel like they should have been allowed to really defend themselves without the family having to jump on. Now, I get the family, it's displaying that this is a family unit. The, the family stone is a family unit that all come show up with bats and knives to, to rally to everyone's defense if you're, if you're one of them. If that's a conversation that's going to be had, unlikely as it seems at a family dinner on Christmas Eve... I feel like that really should have been left to Thad and Patrick to really defend themselves or not defend themselves or or get up and leave or or make some kind of protest. I, well, that's what I mean. It's like they're treating specifically Thad because it's really directed at Thad. Yes. Because, I mean, he is the brother of yes. this of this group. So when you're saying, you know, things like, you know, well, have you decided what race you'd want the baby to be and like all this kind of stuff? You're right. Like like that answers at one point, like, you know, basically like we just want like a healthy child like that kind of thing like we right. don't think about that meredith like and kind of like meredith right. like I mean, she can't know. let it go right She's, <laughs> no she yeah. can't good lord right but you're right and, and it also it kind of creates this thing like again like as if that in particular needs to be protected you know patrick as like you know ancillary needs to be protected and 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 you know sybil wanting to be there for her kiddo totally understand but that doesn't extend to anyone else in the same way mm-hmm. so again this may be totally accurate you may say well maybe she does have a softer spot for that so what of it you know maybe that's just their relationship okay but you know when she throws the the fork at him to get his attention and like clatters all the dishes and stuff and goes like i love you more than any other asshole sitting at this table that was a lot i was like wow <laughs> That was a lot. And I do understand as a special needs mom, I really, really, really do understand this. I I felt uncomfortable. I felt like I was watching somebody get dressed and like I shouldn't be watching this. Like I was like, I don't really understand this exactly. I'm not really. They haven't done enough to develop Thad and Sybil's relationship for me to really get this. And I especially think people outside the special needs community really should look at this and be like, I really don't understand what's exactly happening and what you know, where Sybil, should she have spoken up more, less, whatever. When dad's like enough to Meredith, I was like, God, Meredith, like, why did you keep talking at that point? Like if the dad of a household I was in told me enough, I would be like, oh dude, I'm being quiet. So so, yeah. So a couple things. I think, I think that is the single best moment that Craig T. Nelson has because the movie has established him so much as the soft heart of the family for him to bang the table 
and mm-hmm. yell at this guest at the table enough it made me jump and i remember i watching it now remembered even being taken back by that uh, that outburst way back when it's an effective moment here's my problem i, I mean unless you're some kind of monster if i'm everett and i follow her from the table kind of thing i'm like i, I mean and and cover the kid's ears i'm like bitch leave get the fuck out what are you doing like right. you can't talk to my family or what have you you live in new york city have you never met a diverse group of people before like what right. is happening to you right. uh, what, right. what what i don't know who you are but what i see here is ugly please leave well so i felt a racist vibe i mean most especially the homophobic vibe i mean when she looks at at Sybil and says incredulously, like you would never wish for your children to be gay, I was like, "What decade was this movie put out in?" Like, this just feels like Meredith. You, you are so bizarre of a character. I, it's one thing to to be, you know, just a just a character who has different customs, different traditions, different different outlooks, but to be like that about people's personal lifestyle choices, I'm like, what are you? What the frick, girl? Uh, who could like her? You know, who you asked like at the her? beginning, are we supposed to think that the Stone family is like too hard to get into? Are we supposed to think that Meredith is just like an outcast? Meredith's an outcast. Like her beliefs and her behavior does not gel with anybody I'd want to hang out with. I have never in my life met someone so clumsy in their indefensible positions so do you feel like that that equals bad writing then in the in this movie like should they have toned meredith down or should they have given her different attributes like should she have asked about something that maybe was like a little bit less insane <laughs> like i'm not sure exactly what she could have asked about but like she could have still been at odds with the family but why choose something that's like so like i don't see very many people walking out of the theater being like well that was great that meredith had that dinner conversation she was just representing a different opinion so i think this goes back to and it's one of the reasons i mentioned at the at the top that that tom uh bazucha who wrote this movie this is only his second movie writing and directing and the first one was from like five years prior i think it was called big eden so i think there is some clumsy writing here where we're using giant straw men like the the most bright line bold underlined straw man to make our points and again and i think meredith meredith as a character is fatalistically flawed because she is being used to show how otherwise close this family is and also how much she has corrupted and i'm using corrupted in air quotes everett from his true self um, mm. you know, it, it, like take the scene about him talking. It's actually the scene leading into the dinner talking about, uh, going and having dinner with the monks and the metal Buddha is one the world yeah. like a, that. That's a very stone vibe, right? Mm-hmm. I went and I traveled to Asia and I hung with the monks and I, you know, I was one with myself. That seems to be the true Everett who has now been pod personed into this tie-wearing, suit-wearing, Meredith-loving Everett that this family doesn't recognize. So I think she's constantly being set up to be knocked down as, look at her, look what she's done to this family. Like she, like she, Almost like she's an invading force or, or some kind of virus that needs to be armed against. 
So just to be clear for our, our listeners, so this is Sarah Jessica Parker, because we haven't mentioned that. Yes. Um, yes. And, uh, and you know, I mean, we all come in with feelings on SJP. I had known her from Sex and the City, and I feel like, you know, there's, there's lots going on there with her. But for me, I just, I wish that she just had difference of opinion, not an opinion that like 90% of the world would be like, why would you possibly embarrass yourself in the family with such like bold statement yeah it's not even that she holds the the opinions i I, i'm Mm. never going to tell someone you you're not entitled to the opinions that you have right everyone's like your lifestyle is questionable thanks for having me in your home what right it's it's the ineptitude in which she tries to put forth and put over her opinions at the expense and bombastic indelicacy of attacking the family in which you are a guest in their home. That's my problem with her. It's not that she has horrible opinions. Yes, I would not want to be friends with this woman. I would not associate with this woman. I don't understand whatever it is. This the first time this has ever come up again. They work in New York City. You can't go two feet in New York City without coming across people who are different from you in every way, shape or form. That's kind of the beauty of New York City. So how has this never come up? These homophobic racist beliefs horrible. I would not want to associate with this woman. But my issue with her as a character in this movie is the is is her lack of 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 grace and finesse in every way, shape, and form. It's like she's never socialized before. Especially given that, don't they kind of make her out to be like the savvy businesswoman? Exactly! She's so good at handling negotiations and whatnot, and you're like, what? She is a high finance world traveler. They could sell ice to Eskimos, as the saying goes. They don't act this way in social situations. Whether they like the people they're talking to or not, they have finesse and grace and and a quality about them that even if you don't like them for whatever reason, you can't pinpoint to any particular reason. Meredith is a walking billboard for the most horrible qualities a true, a true monster brought in, in, you know, let in the front gate. That's how that's how she's depicted here. Now it's interesting, Sarah Jessica Parker. I have a lot of issues with as a character actor. The worst part for me of Sex in the City was Carrie Bradshaw. I always found her annoying and grating in every way imaginable. Meredith Morton, uh, who's her character here, I found annoying and grating and horrible in every way imaginable. I mean, I don't know Sarah Jessica Parker. I don't know her at all. I just know I don't like her characters in movies, typically. She's usually the weak link in movies for me. And she is here, too. It's interesting when you read why she took this role. She was cast uh, She was cast for this movie during the final season of Sex and the City, was looking for a way to break out from Carrie Bradshaw and take a different role. Here's a quote she said uh, about Meredith and what drew her to the role. She wrote, she's controlling, rigid and tightly wound. When she tries to dig herself out of awkward moments, she only makes matters worse. And that's true. Yes. <laughs> And she's very not Carrie Bradshaw, other than like the shoes and and the clothes and stuff. You want to play someone so one dimensionally unlikable? Where's there's no redeeming arc here for her. I mean, we're we're supposed to think that she's had some redemption arc once that she's gotten the Luke Wilson uh, yeah, cure I applied to her. You know, once once he's stonified her, I guess. 
but I'm not feeling it. I, I'm, I, when she shows up at the end of the movie, I'm groaning. I'm like, why are you here? What is wrong with you? this family right? accepted you? It took Diane Keaton dying for this family to accept you. There's a reason, you know, I just, oof, I don't know. A lot there. I have a lot there with, with, uh, with Meredith's character here. What did you think of, uh, Luke Wilson here as the old other big brother, Ben Stone? Well, see, not unlike Sarah Jessica Parker, I feel like he kind of ends up playing like kind of the same guy every time. He's always this kind of like chill, laid back, like, hey, what's the matter, guy? You know, and I really did not buy this whole sister swap, brother swap business. Like, I really didn't. I, I don't think that for a second that it would work out that Luke, that, or I'm sorry, that Ben <laughs> and Meredith would be together a year later. Like, the whole concept that like he's going to change her or something. Right. We've been doing too much work over in Kevin can F himself land <laughs> to know that like the idea of having someone stand in front of you and basically be like, let me just change everything about you. And then we can be together is like, right. come on. Yes, I mean, Behave in the way that I'm going to teach you and my family will accept you. If you just change everything about you. Uh, yeah. It just, it's gross. I didn't like any of that. I didn't like that whole part i would say for me claire danes was like the breath of fresh air i liked her a lot i think dermot mulroney agrees with you (laughs) (laughs) i liked her a lot a lot though like i liked her value system like she seemed to come in there and like call it for what it was like she's like meredith are you being your meredith self but then on the flip side she being like I can't get in the middle of this. I'm not, I'm not like, she actually questions the whole, like, I'm not swapping sisters. Like we can't do this. Like she seemed like the most common sense character of the whole bunch. Yes. In a lot of ways. I mean, she was the uh, cousin Marilyn to this monster family in a lot, a lot of way. Like just looking at a situation and just being like, which one of these things don't belong? Well, she doesn't belong because she is truly normal and and just is right. Just just taking it in without kind of any preconceived notions or biases, which everyone else in this movie has their preconceived notions and biases. But here's the thing. So I think the sister swap and the and the brother swap thing is weird and gross. And I don't want to think about it too, too much. I think it's a weird take. I think it also really cuts against the Christmas moviness of this movie. Can I tell you one thing that I did like before we get away from Sarah Jessica Parker and Meredith? Okay, so when she said she was going to make Strata for a Christmas breakfast, I was like, yes, girl, that's what my family has for Christmas breakfast. And it's the only time of year my mom makes it, and it is our Christmas tradition and has always been all of, like, for generationally. Like, that's the only thing we've ever eaten on Christmas morning. I've never had it before. Oh, it's delightful. And I, but when she, when she was putting mushrooms in it, I was like, oh, you're ruining it. What are you doing? <laughs> That's not a thing. And then, of course, when she doesn't even know Everett's allergic to mushrooms, I was like, shut up, shut up, shut up. This is the worst person ever. Yeah. She, she's really, really, How really, do you not really... know? Yeah. That you're, that the person you're with is allergic to a specific food, something as common as mushrooms. Especially again, these are high, powered business people who travel the world you know how often mushrooms are included in cuisine a lot the only thing i can figure though is that that just means that she doesn't pay attention 
to anything about him, like anything about, I mean, God, that is the smallest of all things. I feel like, you know, just, it's just a basic thing. Yeah. Well, it's fine. Cause I know you don't like mushrooms. So I, I say, don't like see, I, so I, I would know, I would know if I ordered food for you, if you had to run to the bathroom you and be like, never order me mushrooms. and they right. said, would she, did she want mushrooms on that? I'd be like, no, she doesn't like mushrooms. And like, I know you I like know cooked it. onions, but not raw onions. So that, it's, it's like all very basic true. stuff that if you've ever yes. had a meal with anyone, even once, I swear to God, you would know some of this stuff. And yet she's on the phone and knows to change the color of the bag. Is it at the beginning or the wrapping paper from the one that he yeah. picks to the red? So she's aware of the details on things only insofar as they're going to reflect upon her in how she presents herself to people. Mm. So Everett is just a showpiece largely for her. That I think yeah. that's the attraction for her is he is just like a, a, a fancy pair of shoes or a nice handbag. He's an accessory for her. He's the right colored bag. And she doesn't need to look inside all of the pockets and know this pocket is allergic to mushrooms. She just <laughs> knows that the bag looks good on her arm. That's the kind of person Meredith is. Not good. Not good. No, not a, not a good look. And, and really never, ever has a redemptive arc. I'll say... And it's it's a touching moment is when she gives them all the picture of Sybil pregnant. Yes. I don't know what kind of cold heart you'd have to have to not be affected by that scene. But the worst was that, like, she didn't even know what the picture was. That's the thing. Like, she assumed that it was Everett that she was pregnant with in the picture. Right. And it wasn't. It was Amy. She she even was like, oh, I just assumed it was Everett. And it was like, even in that moment, it was like, just shut up. Right. Just shut up. Just like, take the win. Just take the win, for God's oh, sakes. It's just so awkward. Like, girl, you just don't know how to handle this stuff at all. Can I give you a little fun fast fact on that scene? Okay. That's a real picture of Diane Keaton when she was younger. But Diane Keaton has actually never been pregnant. So it's a real picture of her that has been digitally altered to make her appear pregnant. Intrigue. We got to talk about Amy Stone, Rachel McAdams's character. In so many ways, I think she is the most fascinating and interesting character in the whole movie. Okay. What did you think of, of Amy as a character? What did you think of Rachel McAdams's performance? This is, this is the year after Mean Girls, her really big breakout role. Well, I think, you know, using her as that little device where she had had lunch with, with the two of them before. So she was coming in with like, you know, uh, like the little grenade basically to like blow up Meredith meeting the family because she was, she had all kinds of mean stuff to say. Rachel McAdams is fine. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a stan. I, I don't, I don't look for her in particular movies or anything like that. But I, I think that Amy herself, I mean, she's so angsty and, and just kind of flailing around that I feel like she, she does, you know, take out Meredith just, just to do it just because she like doesn't have anything better to do. She's not very nice. I'd kind of, I'd really want to punch her if she was my sister. I'm a big Rachel McAdams fan. I, I loved her in Wedding Crashers, which actually comes out the same year. And it's interesting because I think they're so the characters in Wedding Crashers and here are so 180 from each other. Uh, and I think both of these characters are very different from like Regina George in Mean Girls. Now, Regina George, obviously very mean, nasty person, but mean and nasty in a different way than I think Amy Stone is here. So really a really interesting three movie arc that she kind of... Is she though? Or does she just kind of mean girl Meredith? I mean, she basically talks shit about her behind her back. She mean girls Meredith, but I think there's a direct reason she does it. 
is because, and I think the end of the movie reinforces this theory, she is the direct descendant of Sybil. She is Sybil. The, okay. the, the nastiness, the, the, the circle the wagons mentality, the aggressive, we don't like her, you can't sit here with us-ness of it all, mm-hmm. all flows from her mother. Yeah, but that's okay. But why why is that not Regina George? Because that's not, I mean, Regina George is just a nasty, mean girl, high school girl. There's no direct line from A.B. Poehler's character as her mother there that we see going down to her. Regina George is just being a bee, a queen bee, because she's just that person that we all knew in high school. Amy is trying to carry the mantle of her mother and I think the end of the movie where she puts on the ornament that Diane Keaton is holding in the opening scene of the movie, I don't think it's narratively, I think it's 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 supposed to be with an accent point that she's the one who puts it on the tree. I think she is picking up this 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 mantle, this role of even though she's not the oldest sister, I believe Elizabeth Reeser's character is supposed to be the older sister, she is the one who has appointed herself or feels appointed or anointed from her mother as the successor matriarch of the family. And I think she's conducting herself like, you know, like almost like uh, like Simba is trying to live up to Mufasa in like the Lion King. Like she's trying to get her or show her mother, look, I can do it. Like the family will be fine. I think that's how she's dealing also with her grief. I think I think that's all in this character. Flaws and warts and all. And in the same way that I think I think the same character issues I have with Sybil are the same kind of character issues I have with Amy. I think Amy being younger and feistier and with even more fire in her belly is is dialed up to an 11 whereas Sybil's you know, uh, aggression has become maybe more passive aggressive. And so it comes in at like a nine, you know, it's more puppet mastery. I think she is spitting fire in your face at a higher level because I think she's just younger, still trying to fit into that role. So let's get on to, is this a Christmas movie? What do you think? Man, I'm, I've been struggling with this and more and more as we're talking about it, I'm feeling like it's not, uh, I mean, it certainly has the Christmas mu- music. It certainly has the Christmas decor and aesthetic. It fits the idea of family coming together um, and and driving the family crazy in a chaotic way that we have seen families in several of our movies now. Uh, you, know, you get the impression maybe these people aren't as dysfunctional or as chaotic as they are now because it's Christmas time. I don't know. I think this family is like this all the time whenever this family comes together. I agree. So if you had to make it just be like a family reunion or a family wedding or something like that or a family funeral, you could have done any of this. It really did not need to be Christmas. Right. This could have. And I kept thinking like funeral, like a family that has become far flung would come together in the same exact way to deal with the loss of a loved one. I imagine sometime in the interceding year. The family did had split apart and did probably come together. And if you looked at how they were in that weekend, it probably may be a little sadder, maybe less antics or, you know, family falling down on food and having a food fight. But the chaotic nature of their existence all banging off of one one another probably felt very much the same. 
Where are you on the Christmas themes? Are you seeing any of the Christmas themes that we've talked up on? The only thing that it really hit for me was this idea of, you know, Christmas traditions have a way then of keeping a person's memory alive, you know, sort of Jack Frost-esque where, you know, the holidays are a time when you might think about someone who's who's gone. So, you know, we had the ornament as like our symbol and everything. But when it comes to like bigger stuff, like did we have some big Christmas miracle thing that happened or was there this big sense of hope and belief and all that? I don't know. I mean, certainly the family went move, went on, you know, even they were resilient, even in the loss of Sybil. And, you know, with little Gus and everything that felt very like next generation. -y. Yeah, no, it was lacking in that stuff for me. Because the movie doesn't really hit you over the head with it, except for in certain moments. This is a family that's already in grieving mode. And I and I think there is a, a sheen over everyone here, which I think maybe exacerbates the Meredith character even more. This is a family who is already in active grieving even before she's gone. Well, because it represents the last Christmas. Right. The last everything. The last everything. Well, that's one thing we haven't hit upon in our Christmas movies is the idea of like knowing this is likely your last Christmas, the family feeling that and, and what does that look like and how does it how does it actually play out? Right. I mean, the opening scene of the movie where she's looking where Diane Keaton's looking so thoughtful until she's pulled out of her reverie by Patrick and Thad showing up makes sense. Uh, I mean, makes total sense. Once you realize that she has terminal cancer and that this is her last Christmas, when you think back to it, that's actually an interesting layer that she is so pensive in between dealing with the immediacy of her family and also dealing with Everett looking for the family ring, the family stone, as you will, if you will, yeah. you know, in between all of that, she's also trying to make sure that this family is prepared to carry on without her. I think she's in active, active mom mode, making sure everyone in the parts that they play in this organism known as the family stone is 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 teed up and ready to assume the roles that they need to. And I think that's part of why she is writing Everett so hard at this particular time. I don't get the impression this is the first time he's come home for a holiday having a suit and tie on or having this job. I don't think I don't think he's begun this high-powered finance job or whatever in the last year. I think it's just that with her knowing this is the last time, uh the last Christmas and and what that marks, it's important now more than ever that she get her teeth into him and remind him who he really is, that he's really Everett Stone. Uh, not designer handbag to hang off of Meredith's arm. Which I, you know, I think that that's an interesting take to to have for for a mom because I, I could see it going either way. Like I do understand the idea of wanting to make sure that your kids are, you know, set up for success as much as you can before you wouldn't be there to help them. At the same time, I feel like there's a lot of people who would have a completely different approach, which might be like, this is my last Christmas. So I want to be like loving and supportive and say, whatever makes you happy. And, you know, like all those types of things that are like more gushy and lovey. And she plays it so different. You know, she plays it so much more, like you said, like it's your last 
puppet master yanking of the strings in a way that's like, oh, wow, okay, I didn't, you know, that's not necessarily a way you normally see the mom character play out. Yeah, let's play this clip. This is actually the clip that we played at the end of our last movie we covered. What ring? Grandma's wedding ring. Oh. Mom. Yep. This is the woman I'm going to marry. We're talking about Meredith, right? Mom, do you remember when I was dating Beckett Royce? Oh, but she was great. She was nice. But what you told me was when I met the woman who was to be my wife, that I should come to you. That I should come to you because you wanted that woman to wear your mother's wedding ring. Well, I met that woman, and I want to ask you for the ring that you promised me. I'm going to give it to Meredith tomorrow. On Christmas. That woman? Okay, Meredith, Meredith. It's just, honey, I can't give you my mother's wedding ring so that she can... You promise to me. Tough shit. I'm sorry. I know you're disappointed. But think how I feel. Ouch. (laughs) But again, she only cares about making sure her kids are set up where they're being their authentic selves. I think that's all she cares about. And I think that's her problem here. I think that's why she rejects Meredith, why she rejects this version of Everett. And that's what her final mission is here. She will not stop and will not concede because he's disappointing her on her deathbed, on her metaphorical deathbed anyway, Right. By by not living his true authentic self, not until Claire Danes comes into the scene, yeah. and and you you imagine I don't know how much time they had together her uh, where Sybil got to see him with Claire Danes, but you imagine she had no problem handing over the ring for him to give to her because she seemed to bring Everett back to his authentic self. That's what she's looking for here, but in a very hard-nosed, really hard-ass kind of way. Yeah, and a tough shit. See, I think deathbed stuff tends to be like, do this for me, promise me, you know, you will find a woman that you love and will like bring out the best part of you. Not usually tough shit. Think how disappointed I am. Yeah, you don't normally get that. (laughs) So yeah, so I mean, this was a twist on on, on the deathbed type scene. I kind of liked it though. I, I feel you liked it. I was just surprised by it. I didn't, I, I mean, Diane Keaton is a strong character always, no matter where she's, she's playing it. I feel like she's, she is, you know, she, she stands on her own two feet. And so it's not that I didn't, ex- I expected her to be a pushover, but this was stronger than I expected her to be. Strong and immovable. Mm. She does not bend at all, which, you know, is interesting as as knowing she is dying. You have to wonder if if this was a regular Christmas and he comes home with Meredith, is she as formidable and as immovable an object because she knew she would have more time to write the ship that she sees as her oldest son or is she like this anyway? She's never immovable. I mean, you, there, there's there's this idea of I'm dying, 
So screw it. I'm going to enforce my will upon this world until I take no more breath. Or or is it always this is my way or the highway? This is my family's ring. And you only get it when you do the things that I demand of you. You know, is it is it her pending impending death that makes her so immovable and so unwilling to budge? That's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't know either, but I but I'm I'm going to wager a guess that it is her uh like I said, advocacy for her for Thad and all the work that she would have done to raise all these kids that, you know, she is a strong person. I'm not I am not confused by that. I just I don't know where my heart would be, I guess. And and I can see very much the idea that it was most important to make sure your kids are not making you know, any mistakes right on your way out. Like you would be trying to do everything you could to save them. Uh, just a total non sequitur here. I want to shout out. I mentioned Brad before. He's the one who quote unquote popped uh, Amy's cherry. Uh, he was played by Paul Schneider. Fans of Nosferatu uh, will remember as the hourglass man. And we have a great interview from the season two of Nosferatu with Paul Schneider. So you guys should go check over at uh, strong creatives. Welcome uh, in our archives for, for that interview a little cross promotional pod clubhouse <laughs> shout out while i'm thinking about it so go check it out are you ready to do some uh, trivia mike oh please let's 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 do you have one you want to start with oh let well while you're while you're while you're looking for a trivia question i actually wanted to ask you you mentioned the sign language we talked a little bit about it i i've read a couple of different things in preparing for for our talk here where mm-hmm. some people really pan the movie for for being bad sign language and others praised it while acknowledging it was you know subpar it wasn't you know perfect asl acknowledged that a family that would have ad hoc learn how to use sign language and was, were comfortable with each other with each other maybe would be more casual or inexact in their sign language which which way do you come down as someone who has to use sign language in your family uh, and and having a family that has differing different levels of sign language knowledge in it? Did this seem realistic to how a large family like this would know and get about and 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 use the sign language, making sure that was involved in the conversations, which I think they do a consistent job of when he's in the room and facing the conversation. I think the show, the movie is pretty consistent with always at least doing some some lip service to sign language, but I have no gauge for how accurate it was. I didn't have an issue with the level of sign. I, it, it is just conversational sign. It is not like there's a there's a version of sign called signing exact English. It's not that, you know, it is just way more uh, rudimentary, get the point across kind of sign, uh, which is fine. I mean, I don't think that that's unusual in a family setting. Like you said, I do disagree, though, that I thought it was I thought it was rather inconsistent. I mean, I thought they were heavy on it at the beginning and it really fell off as you moved along. Um, I mean, by the end, I mean, they weren't signing at all and they were all in that family Christmas tree scene, you know, and nobody was signing. Uh, That's fair. That's true. You know, so it's sort of like they really did it well at the beginning, I thought. And I was really like, I was happy. I was like kind of giddy. Like I was like, oh, wow. okay. like I was ready to watch for this. And that's what I was saying when I felt like they substituted Patrick in a lot Mm -hmm. for scenes that Thad should have been in. But I also know that would have required a lot more sign. Well, you know, okay, these are choices that they're making. Uh, But by the end, honestly, I mean, think about it. There was there was the scene when Thad and Patrick are like in the car with dad no one's signing at all when we're like racing to go follow everett Mm -hmm. 
So stuff like that, that I was like, oh man, I, I kind of missed that. I didn't think they should be signing at a more precise level. In fact, I liked it. Like when Thad was signing one-handed, I preferred that. It seemed like they were relying heavily on him reading lips and that, you know, for every given sentence, they would sign like one sign. You know, yeah. like, uh, you know, when Amy Adams is doing like the uh, trying to tell him about like the clearing her throat tick, the <clears throat> tick, mm-hmm. like she does like one sign in the entire sentence that she says she's looking at them and you, he's looking at her. So he's clearly reading lips, but she only does like one sign yeah. in the entire sentence. So like almost like she's just and I felt a lot of them did this where it seemed like they were just accentuating whatever the main part of the sentence was either the noun or the verb or whatever okay but that's asl versus signing exact english right okay so asl you you do just do like the noun and the verb like it is it's way more like yeah you're and it's faster and it's it's more rudimentary like that than signing exact english like you're signing each word and it's including like pronouns and stuff like that that like you wouldn't do otherwise um and so yeah i'm i mean I'm, i'm agreeing they're doing more asl and they're doing more, like I said, casual family talk where you're just kind of getting your point across. It's it's more almost like slang. I feel like they used it a lot more at the beginning to establish his character was deaf. And once they felt like you got it, that he was deaf, they substituted Patrick for him. And then they just kind of dropped sign altogether. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you go back and kind of watch it with that eye, I think you'll see it really fast. It was really heavy at the beginning and then kind of petered out. And you're right. He obviously could read lips. I mean, he was doing that during the dinner scene. They would sign some things, but then other things they weren't really signing. Well, they had that whole scene, too, where Meredith clearly doesn't know sign language at all. And so she she does she does the yelling thing, which is what Americans are stereotypically known to do when they're speaking to someone who doesn't speak the language. I know very few adult professional people. No, that's what I said. At someone who is deaf. Like, I felt like that was really. And also, I mean, at least in the in the majority of families that I know, Everett would have had a conversation with her before they right? went there and would have been like, hey, you know, my brother Thad is deaf. He uses ASL. He can use lip reading. Here's how we prefer to communicate. Here's what he likes. Stand on his left side. You know, whatever. Like, there's all kinds of things that very normal, you know, uh, conversations are had like that. So the fact that, that that's what she resorts to doing was like, again, she just comes off like the biggest of rubes, which doesn't match who she's supposed to be. It doesn't. And again, Again, conversations, right? You're going to meet this person's family for the first time. You've been together for however months they've been together now, which granted, it's not the longest relationship, um, but they've still been together for a while. If I am going to meet someone's family for the first time, I want like the play by play on everyone just to, <laughs> yes. just to know how to act. The dossier, right? And, 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 and I would hope the person who was taking me to their family would, would ensure I wasn't going to come out with any mm, off base homophobic or racist <laughs> comments. You yeah. know, maybe, maybe yeah. clear the decks on that before you hop in the car for the drive up. I would consider it ableist to be like yelling at the at the person oh, who's deaf. My. Like, what are you doing? But here's the thing: like, as soon as she starts to do that, it would be so instinctual for really anybody in the family to like put their hand on her. Like, what are you doing? You know, right? Like, because well, they leave it to Thad, so... right? They leave it to Thad to say, "Why is she yelling when she walks away?" Kind of thing. <laughs> yes, right. yes, totally. But that particular portion, I, I really. I had an issue with, I I didn't understand why they had to make her 
just so unlikable. Right. I, I think it goes back to the lack of nuance in a young screenwriter who yes. was who was given yes. a tremendous cast to play with and and probably failed to to utilize them to their best. Okay, Mike, you ready for some trivia? Sure. There's actually not a ton of trivia for this movie uh, beyond what we've already talked about a little bit of well, the I things. I think we did an excellent job of sprinkling it in this time. So we've actually given you quite a bit of trivia. But here's just like a couple little facts. So this is one of two movies starring Sarah Jessica Parker featuring the movie Meet Me in St. Louis starring Judy Garland. The other movie is Sex in the City. The movie! Which, hey, you're a big music guy. I mean, what did you think about Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas? I, I so I didn't realize Judy Garland sings Meet Me and say uh, sings Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas in uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. I actually didn't know that. That was a that was a fact I learned uh, doing this. I, I learned Michael G- Giancano, who I actually really like. He was actually the composer on Lost, and he's done a bunch of movies since, but uh, since that TV show. But I like him as a composer. He's one of the more modern American composers that I'm a big fan of. He recreated note for note, tempo for tempo, uh, pitch for pitch the meet me in st louis version of have yourself a merry little christmas and that's actually the version we hear in the movie i thought the use of it while it's a montage scene getting to see all of the different stone family members preparing for their christmas eve or spending their christmas eve i thought was really effective i thought it was really beautiful i think judy garland anytime judy garland sings it's a very mesmerizing experience so Again, that's like one of the scenes where it really sucks me into the movie where I'm feeling, you know, my heart is just open and I'm just feeling the Christmasness of it all. <laughs> I do agree with you. That was one of the, the, the good moments. And we actually see Sister a little bit. Uh, right. She, right. She's the one she's actually, actually watching. Around. Right. Right. She's actually watching. She, she's the lump on the couch watching the movie. <laughs> She is pregnant and everything, but God, they really just didn't do shit. I mean, if, if if that stone didn't exist, I think this movie feels exactly the same. I think it definitely feels the same. My even goodness. the idea, even the idea of because the, they mentioned it a couple of times, like her husband, he's going to be there the next day. Like, yeah. what, is, what does it matter? Like, he has nothing. To, who even cares? How about this? Everyone was like super happy and caring that Gus was coming into the picture. Guess what? She had a baby, too. I don't even know that baby's name. Very good points. <laughs> How weird is that? Is Very there just point. always the forgotten Susanna in every family? Is that what we're supposed to get out of that? Maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, let's talk a little bit about casting here because... Oh, gosh, we certainly have. Well, 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 well casting that never came to be, much like oh. the, ghost, the Ghost of Christmas feature. This okay, was, okay. Yes, yes. yes. Okay. One, one future casting. This movie could have seen uh, having Billy Crudup and Johnny Knoxville playing the roles of Everett and Ben Stone. It actually, uh, and Aaron Eckhart was actually the original casting over Dermot Mulroney for Everett. Those are, yeah, I mean, Aaron Eckhart, I mean, most people probably know him as playing the district attorney uh, who becomes Two-Face in uh, uh, Nolan Batman movies. Okay. Kind of interesting. I I mean, I don't think, I don't think he has the same Dermot Mulrooney-ness. I think Everett would have been a very different character. I don't know, more likable or less likable or more believable. My feeling is he would have been even more unbelievable bringing this woman home if it's Aaron Eckhart playing. I think there's a sincerity and an integrity to Aaron Eckhart's face 
you would not have believed in any way, shape, or form he brought this horrible monster home to meet his family. Not only that, but I also would like to think that you wouldn't believe that he thought a sister swap would be a cool idea. Yes, yes. Very anti-sister swap vibe from Aaron Eckhart. Can we just hit on that for just a moment here? Sure. I have to ask you. I know the whole, you know, bros before hoes, sisters before misters. Is this fathomable that you could just swap brothers swap sisters like is this a thing i'll tell you i found the idea that dermot mulrooney would be more attracted to claire danes's jewels is that her name yeah julie julie i found that idea much more believable than everyone being cool with ben absconding with meredith during the course of the day that they're meeting her, even to the point of waking up in the bedroom with her, that whole scene, that whole shit, going and getting drunk with her. Like if she's going to leave the house because of the horrible things she's done and said, then she should be getting on a bus going back to New York, not going to get drunk with Ben in a bar. That is, that's the part that I can't get through. No, I couldn't get past the idea of just moving over to the inn. I was thinking like, once I move to the inn, why am I going back over to the family's house at all? Like, like at that point, I'm going home. How good is your strata that you think you can overcome the obstacles that you have now placed in front of you? (laughs) Well, my strata is fantastic. So how dare you? But when it comes to like, but and why? Why wouldn't Everett go over to the inn with her? Like it's because so he's messy. disgusting. Because he, it's he so messy. Right. Everett didn't go over there because he's like, my God, this woman is a horrible monster. I feel horrible that I have brought her and exposed her to my family. Oh, but P.S. Can I have the family ring? That hadn't even happened by the time he she moved over to the inn, and then he asked for the ring. what i don't know i don't know but i found she uh, julie was such a breath of fresh air she was like i felt like a whole different movie began when she came in on the scene it was like the other movie had stopped and i started watching a brand new movie she is so the opposite of her sister and by that i mean she is such a stone in vibe and behavior if not yet in name though i guess apparently that happens of course he's attracted to her. He, She literally represents everything that his mother worries he's lost about himself. When she describes that whole flagpole story, oh my God. And he's like, I just want to see that flagpole. I was like, oh my God. I mean, I, I mean I, from before she's even opened her mouth where she slips and falls down the stairs off of the bus. I know. And she was so cute, though. Yes. Yes, she was cute, clumsy, and Meredith was gross, clumsy. Because Meredith is a troll that lives under the bridge. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> who eats your babies? No. And and Julie is Glinda the Good Witch. Well, those are two different creatures altogether. I'm saying yes, they're the same creature, they're, but no, they're, they're, they're very coming t- off very differently. No, I would want to. I would want to check the DNA that they're actually related by blood. Okay, no, wait, hold on. I'm going like, what about like Claire is like a pixie, and then she's like a like a gross imp. Well, so so here's the thing. So Claire, same would, creature, right? In, in modern parlance, we would refer to modern parlance. Let me go get my objet. Uh, we would we would refer to Claire's <laughs> uh, to Claire Danes' entry to Julie's. Entry 
entrance as a manic pixie dream girl, right? This impossibly perfect girl of our dreams who comes into the middle of it. The only problem is she's not manic. So she doesn't have the crazy vibe that you get with the typical manic pixie dream girl, but she has the pixie dream girl vibe completely down. She's literally like a weird science creation of the ideal stone woman for a stone man to marry and mate mm-hmm. with. Like, did you say and mate with? Well, I did. I did. Oh, and, pr- and propagate the stone line. That's how they all feel. They feel <laughs> like a dynasty. And, yeah, make little pebbles <laughs> that will grow into big boulders. Uh, they, fe- they feel like a dynasty that is trying to grow out of this this small yeah, New do. England town. But I found his being attracted to her, especially when you're comparing her to her sister, much more believable than all of the Ben stuff, which I found gross and off-putting in every way, shape, or form. I feel like they should have just made Meredith a means to an end to find Julie. Okay, so I was fine with that. But to have Meredith end up with Ben seemed like nah, 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 dog. That should have just been the plot device in order for these two to find each other. And, you know, now he has uncomfortable holidays where I'm sure he has to see Meredith over at Julie's parents' house. And that's uncomfortable. But not that she's, like, in with Ben. Why'd they have to follow that storyline? Well, because, but here's the thing, right? So in the end, they are saying that Ben served for Meredith the same person, the same purpose that Julie served for Everett. That Meredith actually wasn't a horrible troll creature who eats babies. She had just not been able to tap into her stoneness. Uh. That until she, until Ben got a hold of her, that then she was able to access and become acceptable and palatable to the family. But I'm sorry, no person who says and acts the way she acts in this movie is stonable. You can't convert that cheetah. Like those spots are not changing. She is a horrible person to her core. (laughs) I don't think that Ben would hold any interest to her. I mean, he's a bad boy that you have a fling with over a weekend when you're drunk in the bar. Okay. But like to continue on a relationship, like what are you talking about? Like, does he sleep? uh, He sleep on the couch and eat like cereal all day while she's at work. Come on. Like, what is their life supposed to have continued on to be? Well, okay. So one thing is I think the wrong Wilson brothers showed up to this movie. I think they treat Ben charismatically as if it's Owen Wilson playing him and not Uh, Luke Wilson. Okay, okay. Owen Wilson has a charisma about him. I mean, see Wedding Crashers, where in the same role, the same dialogue, if it's Owen saying it, you get why Meredith would be drawn to him. Luke Wilson doesn't have that same charisma factor. Luke Wilson's the guy you call to do your taxes, or, or to give you a big brother speech about something that's dro- dreadfully boring. Owen Wilson's the one who's impish with a twinkle in his eye, who can double entendre everything and make you feel something squiggly down below, but also not be gross about it. Luke Wilson doesn't have that quality. Owen Wilson has that quality. So I think I think they were making... Squiggly down d- below? Yeah, I mean... Oh my goodness. I think you can believe that he is smarter. 
in a lot of ways. And that we were missing the smart factor. What about this horrible woman that Ben is there? He hears all the things that she says and does and acts. So is it just that she represents a challenge that he thinks he can stonify her, that he can strip away with the with the most stringent varnish ever, all of the layers of horrible and get to this soft nougaty center that he maybe thinks she has. That's the only thing I can get. Why would Ben do this other than just to mess with his brother? And by the way, I think it's hysterical when they have their little chase and their slap fight and they wind up underneath the table. That all gets to me. I love that whole family wacky dynamic thing. I was I came with that woman. And you're like pursuing her sexually right in front of me and in front of everyone. Is yeah. it? I think it must just be the challenge that she represents for him. Yeah, I think a thousand percent. And just and just I think that he's this, has cut from the same cloth with Amy, just messing with her, you know, not knowing if he's going to get to her or not, you know, but it's just something to do. <laughs> oh, know? I think so. I think so. But in the end, but it works but so well. But that's why end up being together seems so ridiculous. Well, I mean, not to quote Sybil here, but maybe, you know, she had a taste that he liked and stuck to and couldn't quit. Wow. God. Sebel said it first, not me. Sebel said it first, huh? All right, let's start talking about, let's start thinking about our Jingle Bell ratings. Okay, while I'm thinking, will you play me a clip for next week? Oh, I will. And this is a saucy clip I'm playing for you. Ooh, wow, okay. Why did you do that? I changed my type. What do you mean? Now I'm the type that does kiss married women. Oh. And I like it. Well, I don't like it. No. There's only one thing to do with you. Yes? Let's do it. No, no. Now, don't you come near me. You attract me, remember? Well, you forget. I... Oh, oh, no, I don't. You're a married woman, but you don't feel like a married woman, remember? Well, it's not fair. Oh, there are rules to this game, are there? You must teach me. Well, uh, men who are engaged must... Play the game. Yes. Well, let's play. Wow. Right? I okay, so right? first of all, super <laughs> sassy. And I would probably pay money for a guy to like have that great banter with me. That would be like, you know how like you can go places and like smash dishes? I feel like you should be able to go someplace and like speed flirt like that and like go back and forth with someone who can actually keep up. I think that would be amazing. But in terms of what this movie is, I have no idea with that fanciful soundtrack in the background. It is 1945's Christmas in Connecticut starring Barbara Stanwyck. Wow, I've never seen a Bab Stanwyck flick. So me either. I, completely foreign to me. I, I've heard of the movie. It pops up on a lot of lists. It went on this one because I was like, it feels like it's part of the Christmas movie canon that we should definitely check off. But compl- I, I know nothing about it. I scoured the movie on Fast Forward looking for a scene. This was the third one I came upon. Uh, upon and I was like, eh, that's pretty sassy. <laughs> and really, I really, I mean, it sets a whole tone for a movie that I have no idea what it's about. So it certainly does. Yeah. Okay. It's Jingle Bell rating time. Time, and I believe I went first last time. So you went first in old you. Jack Frost, the last movie that we I did. I believe I did. I think I did. Aww. All right. Well, I, I was go very first. ready for Jack Frost. I still really like this movie. I still think this is a movie people should watch because I think it does a good job of confusing you. I think it does a good job of making you wonder, should I be happy? Should I be sad? Should I be laughing? Should I be crying? I think there's a frenetic energy here that really reflects an authentic experience of a large family coming together in a stressful time where everything turns from 
laughter to sadness on a dime. And you can have those emotion switches. The scene where they end up where the strata goes over all over the floor and they all wind up in like this Three Stooges like, uh, you know, collision table snaps. The boys come in, they break the table, they wind up underneath it having a slap fight. You know, where it's funny, but it's also sad, where where really one moment to the next, you're you're just on this whiplash roller coaster of emotion constantly. That's what this movie was for this is what this movie was for me watching it now. It's what I remember from way back when. I think really depicts honestly a family, a dysfunctional family experience that if you've never experienced, feels like this really foreign thing that you don't know what you're watching and you don't know what you're feeling but if you're in it and you can identify it with it you look at it and be like yeah that that is there's a lot of stuff there that's honest and relatable it has some serious narrative problems it has some serious sarah jessica parker problems it hasn't aged well homophobic and racist aspects to it as much as i love this movie and still like this movie and think everyone should go watch this movie for a movie's sake i don't think it's a good christmas movie it has no magic to it it is a a movie depicting a family steeped in sadness and grief but it doesn't have any of the christmasy themes of coming together for the good of man it doesn't have the hope there's no hope in this movie really there's not uh this movie is all about the the lack of hope the expiration of hope it's all about the grief grieving stage happening before the person's even gone it it has some christmas music and i really actually like the orchestral music in this and i think everyone should go listen to the soundtrack it's actually pretty wonderful but really that's the most christmasy part here this movie could have taken place at any time of the year where a large family comes back together i'm giving this movie a five and i'm only ranking it that high jingle bells wise because i like it as a movie i really think it fails horribly as a christmas movie Five Jingle Bells. Okay. I am going to give this one four Jingle Bells because I do think that it is not a Christmas movie that I feel like needs to be high up on anyone's list. I feel like this is sort of a Hallmark movie with an edge. It's it's like a like more of a rudimentary version of what a movie could be. Uh, there's some good ideas in here, but I don't think that they really followed it through. And like I said, the way that it kind of felt disjointed, like once Julie came into the scene, it felt like a whole different movie altogether. I think Julie should have started from the beginning or something. I don't know. Something something's amiss in the in the chemistry of the whole thing. Can I so. can I pitch a, a a fix to this movie that I'm curious because I think it may change how I felt about this movie and and how I felt about it as a Christmas movie. And I'm curious, hear this pitch and tell me what you think. Okay, so hold tight for a mic rewrite. Uh, well, all right, I don't. I, 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 I just want. Mic. Go I, ahead. I want. I want to bit about that. <laughs> be, be. I want you to finish what you're saying. No, but I, I want to. I'm done. I'm done. I said what I'm going to say. You go ahead. What if they in this movie really accentuate the fact that this family is starting the grieving process and really hit us over the head in a tangible way? The idea of. Christmas has always been the time that the stones come together and this is the last one and we're all very much aware of that and acting accordingly that we are crazy SOBs usually but we are dialed up in a fragile way because of this pending grief and sadness that has 
descended like a cloud. So even when we're laughing, even when we're having a go at each other in the way that families do, or especially a dysfunctional families do, it's all tinged with a sadness. If they had accentuated that manic aspect of it, that grief aspect to it, and that this was a last Christmas, more than just an imputed scene at the beginning of the movie with Diane Keaton and the ornament looking thoughtful, and then the end of the movie where they gather and they do the where the wild things are, let the rumpus begin, and they hang the last ornament. Other than those moments, if they had permeated that throughout does that feel more like a Christmas movie? A sad one to be sure, but more like a tangible, this movie should have happened at Christmas and is a Christmas movie? I th- I think so. I think that you could have had, you know, uh, more of those moments of like, like, remember just the rando moment on the bleachers at like the sports field with, you know, dad and kid, you know, yeah. where they're like dealing with I, just there was too many of those moments that were so isolated. Like you could tell they were either filmed as like an afterthought or, or they just weren't edited in well that. Yeah, you're right. If they had made the the fact that it was Sybil's last Christmas more seamless and celebrated it more, highlighted it more. Yeah, I think that that could have given it a lot more you know, like legitimacy of, of the frantic nature of this family. At at the point where you're terminal, everything is a last something. So why Christmas versus a last Thanksgiving versus a last Halloween versus a last Thanksgiving to be honest with you, they should have made this a Thanksgiving movie. And then, and then they still could have hung the, the ornament at Christmas. Like, so she passed away within the months between Thanksgiving and Christmas, you know, the month. I That would have worked for me. In some ways, this movie becomes a better Christmas movie if they make it a Thanksgiving movie with the right. with the stated idea that mom won't be here for Christmas. Not only yeah. this is our last Thanksgiving, this is the last time we are all together here. Totally. Like, when we figured out that, you know, Anna and the Apocalypse should have been a, a graduation or Fourth of July movie. Yeah, end of the year kind of movie. Once we hit that nail on the head, this one, Thanksgiving. Everyone came home for Thanksgiving. They got the news because they didn't know if mom was going to make it to Christmas. So maybe even they exchange presents because they don't know if mom's going to make it to Christmas. So they make this like faux Christmas at Thanksgiving time. That would have felt perfect. And we would have been like, yes, that's a Christmas movie because look at these people moving hell and high water here in order to make something special for someone else for Christmas. That's what they're missing. Nobody did something special for someone else. And and even just table set more for us why it matters. Why is, is the, you know, because, you know, we don't get to see each other. You are all old and out of the house now. We don't get to see each other other than Susanna's invisible kid who she drops off constantly because her husband's never home. That's what I take from <laughs> Susanna. Like she has, so to, she has to come home a lot because she's trying to raise her daughter and her, her you know, she's had her infant now. She's, she's having an exhausted pregnancy. Uh, right. But everyone, everyone else has left the home. And so Christmas is that one time of the year where the family comes together. Even a scene setting between Sybil and um and Kelly uh, as the as the matriarch and patriarch of the family in bed to start the movie you know talking about how this may be the final time they come together yeah have that bed scene earlier like i mean they had it it happened way too late in it and when it did it was jarring right table I set mean, for us the yeah. significance of this being a final christmas because we all admit christmas is a different time of year from other times of year but there's an inherent differentness about christmas but you got to tell us that you know but who i i don't i don't get why christmas is important this 
I would have liked this as Thanksgiving where we're exchanging presents because we don't know if mom's going to make it. So we're having these like faux like traditions at the, well, we're having the thing, the Christmas traditions at Thanksgiving because we don't think mom's going to make it in time. Really revel in that. Really like go for the traditions, really go for the stone, you know, like they do in other movies, like meet the Fockers and, and meet the parents and all this kind of stuff where they have like, well, this is the traditional, you know, whatever, or even wedding crashers. This is the football game we always play. Like, Go for the family traditions that this family would have and have mom have like her last days with this and then mix Meredith in with it. Now you've got more of an interesting movie. Look at that. I'm going to call this Mike and Caroline rewrite. From Bradley Cooper. Mike and Caroline feel good. (laughs) 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 Rewrite. I do like that. And you know what? We're playing that, but set to current with like sleigh bells behind it. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast and all the podcasts clubhouses podcast at apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts we're available everywhere and if you could leave us a five-star rating while you're there we've most appreciate it so we don't have to throw the strata on you and make you smell a little pukey don't make us do it don't make us do it strata is delightful take that back thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original pod clubhouse production Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.